This is Aspire, Arc Street Public Radio, a content-driven platform broadcasting interviews from our Innovate, Innovate Media, Innovate CSR, and Innovate Under 30 podcast series. Aspire gives public voice to socially conscious and forward-thinking leaders within the nonprofit and for-profit sectors, academia, journalism, and social entrepreneurship. My name is Robert Rim, Managing Editor for Arch Street Press. I'll be your host today. Today our guest is Thomas Tai, President and CEO of Direct Relief, a non-governmental, non-sectarian nonprofit with assistance programs focused on maternal and child health, prevention and treatment of disease, and emergency deterrence in response. Thomas graduated from the University of California, Berkeley, in 1982 and received his JD from the University of California's Hastings College of Law in 1985. He was awarded an honorary doctorate of laws from Hobart and William Smith Colleges in 2003. Prior to his role with Direct Relief, Thomas served as Associate Counsel on the U.S. Senate Committee on Veterans Affairs and as the Associate General Counsel, Chief of Staff and COO of the Peace Corps. Thomas is a member of the Pacific Council on International Policy, an advisor to the Clinton Global Initiative, and a visiting professor at the University of California at Santa Barbara's graduate program in Global and International Studies. He was named Executive of the Year by the South Coast Business and Technology Forum in 2006. Thomas, good to have you with us today. Thank you so much. It's great to be with you, Robert. Did you have any experiences growing up that inspired your work for others? Well, you know, my father was killed in Vietnam when I was six years old. He, I was an army brat. He was a career army officer. And so this was um, probably, you know, looking back, I think what, what affects you, who you become, I think it's a lot of those things uh, that happened to you as a kid. So I think growing up really, I was six. It was in 1967. It wasn't a particularly popular war. And growing up, you know, raised by, uh, you know, a widow, one of four little kids, but what, you know, my mom and um, my father's family took great pride in was his service. He was a West Point grad from kind of modest, you know, um, background in Chicago. And I think it couldn't help but influence, you know, my interest in kind of both kind of government service, uh, service general, public service generally, and international affairs. So it... I guess like most things, it look, makes a lot more sense when you look back than it did at the time looking forward, uh, probably cluelessly growing up um, in my case, but um, I'm pretty sure that had a, a big influence on how I grew up, what I thought about, what seemed to matter in this life, and recognizing that you know things can change uh, very suddenly. And how did the legal aspect come in, in your, as far as you're getting your law degree? Well, I think it's probably kind of interesting government and uh, public affairs generally. And I think when back in the old day, you know, when I was <laughs> in college in the last millennium, I think, you know, public service kind of meant government service. And it wasn't necessarily a bad thing. It's, it, it's kind of almost, you know, evolved a lot. I think it's not particularly attractive to generations coming up now. Um, but it seemed to me my interest, what I studied, it was sort of a natural um, progression academically. And I, as a liberal arts major, you know, you, I didn't feel particularly well educated um, coming out of undergrad. And um, law school was interesting, kind of the academic part of law school and the government part of, of law school uh, was, was far more interesting to me than kind of the, the professional track of, you know, being a lawyer and billing hours and getting on the, the partner path, which is probably why after I took the bar, I joined the Peace Corps, <laughs> was a Peace Corps volunteer. But um, I really enjoyed kind of the academic part of law school. I, it's a helpful filter for a lot of, uh, a lot of things, including what I'm doing now. But it's, um, the career path was, was less attractive to me at, at the time than the, the studying of it was. Understood. And talking about that helpful filter, what's it been like using your legal experience, uh, experience and expertise to help people directly? Well, you know, I think basically, you know, law school provides as a framework to understand issues and think them through, you know, including, well, you know, what is the issue and um, <laughs> are you sure that's the issue and what are different ways to look at that issue and then what do you think about it? So I think in general, in, in public policy or in, uh, in analysis of, uh, of really any situation, it's the same basic thing that's been 
generically helpful um, in, in at direct relief when we have we're faced with an organization. I think it's I find myself retreating back to that same um, kind of mental exercise of do we have the right issue in focus um, and have we explored all the right options and really vetted them and do we have a, a clear choice of what the best path forward is? So I think it's it was helpful um, kind of indirectly in that respect and. Certainly when I got out of the Peace Corps, having forgotten most of what I'd learned in law school after teaching English in Thailand for a few years, the only reason I got hired in the Senate as a lawyer was because I had a law degree. So it was, uh, <laughs> I had to qualify, you know, they said, so you're, you're a lawyer. And I was sort of saying, you know, yes, but I did pass the bar, but really I've been in Thailand teaching English for the past few years. So I know a lot more about that than I remember. So don't quiz me on, um, you know, things legal at that time, but, you know, many people in, in Washington certainly have legal educations, but haven't, like I had not, you know, practiced law. So given what you just des uh, described, how in fact did you come to work for the U.S. Uh, Senate Committee on Veterans Affairs? Was was part of that because of your family background, your father? Yeah, well, it was kind of, an, uh, kind of a nice confluence of events. The, the chairman at the time was uh, Senator Alan Cranston, who was my home state senator from California. And he also was uh, a longtime supporter of the Peace Corps on the Foreign Relations Committee, where he was a, a subcommittee chairman. So uh, at the time that they were, they had an opening, they liked both aspects of my background, I think, because I had come been able to go to college and law school on the educational benefits that were available to surviving children of, uh, you know, people who'd been killed in service. And so I had a deep personal appreciation for what that meant to me and, uh, and what it meant to families. And then on the, on the other side of, you know, the job was kind of double-hatted uh, as a kind of a staff member for the Foreign Relations Committee working on the Peace Corps, which I had just come out of. So. I think it was really because of Senator Cranston's interest in both, kind of leadership in both, and the fact that I sort of arrived at the right time without really any relevant qualifications. I mean, looking back, I'm not sure on any credential basis I was qualified, but I was aware of that and certainly appreciative and really motivated because of the importance that uh, I knew the veterans uh, programs had that I benefited from personally and, and the Peace Corps, which kind of needs champions because it's, there's a lot of other things that compete for folks' attention on the Hill and funding, of course. So it was a great job at an interesting time. And that passion and motivation really transcends the academic aspect in, in many cases, doesn't it? Yeah, I think you, you have a, I mean, the, the best thing about the Peace Corps is that, you know, that, um, is being a volunteer, but and you have this sense that that it's not just what you're doing on any given day, which is often kind of boring or drudgery. It's what it represents and what it stands for. And so I think when they set it up with kind of the architects from Sergeant Shriver and John Kennedy in in those heady days of the '60s, when you know before I was kind of aware, um, you know that still had that. It meant something. It meant it was a different type of service. So you felt. Or I felt that it wasn't just kind of marking time and being kind of a, a teacher abroad. There was a larger purpose associated with it. And, I, you know, certainly military service, um, people who'd served the country in the armed forces, uh, working on the staff of the Veterans Affairs Committee and for the Senate, I think that that certainly comes through strongly. It's not just what you're, what you're doing, what the policies you're doing are important, the from you know educational benefits to the healthcare services to the mental health services and all the other programs that Congress authorizes um, and funds, there's a special additional purpose that you know felt that it had a deeper meaning and it was really a strong motivation to to put in the time and think it through and do right by the folks you were trying to do right by um, and it was really impressive you know working on both the Peace Corps and veterans issues it was I had this felt like I had a rare privilege that people basically didn't divide along party lines. They basically thought they were both good things to do. They argued about funding levels and oversight and how things were going, but there was a basic consensus uh, among, you know, 
Republicans and Democrats who still talk to each other at the time and were friends, um, that this is an important thing for the country to do. And at the congressional level, and including the staff level, the obligation was to make sure that you're fulfilling this important purpose of the government to look after people who'd serve in the armed forces and understand what the nature of the, the government's obligation was to, uh, you know, care for the the soldiers and uh, and airmen and seamen and marines themselves, but also the families um, and other people affected by their service in the war. And you, so it felt like there was an additional meaning beyond just kind of going to work in, in not a very nice office, you know, and working long hours and not much money. It, it, that meaning kind of provided the fuel and the motivation, as it I think did in the Peace Corps for volunteers to, to staff members both. And when you became the Associate General Counsel of the Peace Corps, what kind of work did you do? Well, initially it was the same, kind of the flip side of what I was doing on the Hill, where, you know, I think Congress authorizes, uh, you know, the, the Peace Corps programs, it sets the funding levels each year, um, it confirms a few of the positions, and those were the kinds of things that I was working on. And so when President Clinton was elected, um, you know, I guess I was one of the resident experts on the Hill about things related to the Peace Corps, and not because I was anything special, it's because there was no competition. I mean, other people were <laughs> really focused on other issues, but I had, um, you know, been working on that. So they asked me to come down, and what I first did was kind of serve uh, from the Peace Corps side to representing the, the Peace Corps' interests with people I'd just been working with, you know, you know, the week before on the Hill about what the funding level should be, what the issues are, and what, you know, help uh, we'd seek from uh, the Congress to keep funding levels up and that sort of thing. So um, it was a kind of a natural transition, just basically the same issues that I'd been working on, but from the executive branch, not the, um, the legislative. Was it also a natural transition to become the chief of staff and the COO of the Peace Corps? No, it was, uh, you know, at the time it was funny because, you know, one of the things you learn, I, I guess, um, in Washington, it's, you, know, you write things down, you, you write memos, and you hope people read them, and <laughs> you try to make them short. <laughs> yes. um, and, I, and from the Hill, you have this kind of detached almost view. Um, you're not responsible for the management of the federal agencies, but you're responsible for the congressional oversight of them. So I think when I got down to the Peace Corps, one of the things I observed was, um, you know, just how it looked from kind of outside, even though I was there, in that the structure of the Peace Corps, um, the kind of the political structure of the Peace Corps with appointees that kind of paralleled, you know, director, deputy director, um, uh, regional associate directors, uh, like the Peace Corps' version of assistant secretaries of state for different geographic regions, it didn't lend itself to like um, what like a business would do. Well, who's the chief operating officer? Where what's the chain of command? Where does the there's the policy setting that's important for people at the at the director's level and the external representation, but the functional pieces were very kind of fragmented. And so I I wrote a memo that kind of observed that it might be interesting to consider the option of a kind of a chief operating officer model, and um, that was kind of seen and got some circulation and ultimately folks thought it, it made sense and they asked me to do it and I thought that is a terrible idea you know <laughs> I, because I wrote a good memo does not mean I'm any in any way capable of uh, actually doing the job I had kind of zero management or supervisory uh, responsibility as a, a congressional staffer so my next memo was why it was a bad idea to make uh, me uh, you know that person that I thought would in the abstract made sense as a role and you know I think in talking to the folks who ultimately had to approve it over at the White House it was one of those funny yeah 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 you're in Washington look around who else is gonna do it and I thought well you know you've got a point okay I'll give it a shot and uh, and there I there I went but it was a it was a lot of fun you know very intimidating uh, real challenge to kind of try to you know work with uh, Mark Aaron, who was the Peace Corps director at the time, and kind of an amazing person uh, who had come from the White House as uh, the president's deputy chief of staff and communications director, who was about as good as there had been at the Peace Corps since Sergeant Shriver in terms of the ability to represent 
and communicate the power of the idea and the importance of the engagement and for him to have tried to get into the weeds of like you know every the staffing levels and funding levels and all that stuff would have made no sense I think so that was uh, we got along great he's an amazing person and that was uh, who I worked for and with and um, unfortunately it was at a time when the the popularity of the Peace Corps at least the funding available to the Peace Corps uh, was tightening up it was you know 94 and uh, you know the, the Congress flipped for the first time in 50 years to basically democratically controlled to Republican con controlled and so there was you know cutbacks and uh, that sort of thing so that wasn't my f first kind of responsibilities were figuring out how to run the Peace Corps at a much reduced uh, level so when you have to so much of the money is involved in staffing so having to figure out how to reduce headcount as they say isn't the best way to kind of you know earn friends and um, supporters your first week on the job but uh, we did it and I think came out stronger and it was a great learning experience for me for sure. And despite the question in that second memo of yours, <laughs> uh, the fact remains that under your leadership the Peace Corps saw resurgent growth and uh, actually uh, to a point that it marked a 27-year high. So how did you establish that? I think you know part of it was <clears throat> certainly not me alone uh, by any stretch. I think it was uh, and President Clinton was supportive and it, there was a real tension. This was the the chairman of the Foreign Relations Committee at the time was Senator Jesse Helms, who was um, kind of famous for really being critical of the U.S. foreign aid programs. Um, he thought, um, I think fairly or unfairly, that they were kind of launched in the 60s, they had gotten big and weren't particularly effective, and they, they weren't serving kind of America's interests. And um, I think although there was a kind of a fight at the ideological level about how and whether and to what extent the United States should engage in these things we called foreign aid, I think, you know, we basically read the writing on, on the wall and said, look, um, times have changed since the Peace Corps was founded in the Cold War. It is worth looking at it again. Um, but you know, we talked a lot to the staff on the, on the Hill, including Senator Helm's staff, and said, look, how would you, if we kind of re-examine and come back and we have to, you know, cut back because we have less funding, but do you, is this going to make any difference to you? Is it, is it ideological so we'll go through this exercise and you'll still just want to cut it back? Or is there any chance that if we do this in good faith, you'll support, you know, the program as redesigned? And they said, yeah. So, uh, you know, we went through a careful review and ended up closing a lot of programs and said we agreed that some of these programs had been running on inertia and they weren't necessarily, you know, easy to defend the expenditure of money on. But so we trimmed back, closed some kind of longstanding programs we didn't think had a lot of energy or particular value and um, kind of took our medicine and then went back and said, look, we think this focus makes sense. It's really important for Americans to have this opportunity to engage in public service um, in a way that's different from business and it's different from academic exchanges. It's a way to have them understand um, what it's like to work and, and live and the hopes and aspirations of folks in place in a way that otherwise doesn't exist. And that's what the Peace Corps has done. And it's, there's a lot of benefits on both sides. So it still makes sense, we think. And here's where our plan to grow. So, you know, two years after we had experienced a cutback, I think Senator Helms was um, kind of supporting a bill that would have the Peace Corps uh, grow at a very rapid clip and, you know, supporting uh, authorizing legislation to expand the Peace Corps significantly, which was sort of very unusual at the time. And um, so I think that gave me, again, a sense that People can disagree on a lot of stuff, but you've got to listen, and particularly those who are in control, try to meet them where they are and work through something. And as it turned out, although you know one would normally think uh, that Jesse Helms would have been a supporter of the Peace Corps' expansion, he was. And I thought that was um, because we'd done what he asked and looked at the numbers, uh, not just fought it on a political basis because we would have lost. Um, and I think that was a good reminder that you know you have to – Times change, um, and things that made sense under one set of circumstances may not make sense, so don't retain them. And look at what the idea was and see if there's a different way to do it in the times you're in now. And so we tried to do that with the Peace Corps. It, was, um, it worked, and I think it's 
it kind of ebbs and flows the support for the Peace Corps, you know. Um, so I still kind of from afar a, a huge fan and admire the the initial idea, how it's reinvented every few years, and the continued desire of people who are kind of probably wired like I was that it just seems like there's um, something that I should should do that's in service to others is interesting and. It doesn't matter if it doesn't pay a lot. You know, I'm still pretty young. So um, it was a privilege to work there, and I'm still a big fan of both the idea and and knowing that it's hard to keep it fresh. And while different from business, obviously, uh, was there an element of social entrepreneurism that, that came into play at the Peace Corps? Yeah, I think, you know, that, that term probably wasn't, when I was there, uh, it, it probably wasn't a term yet. It wasn't, you know, social entrepreneurism. But I think... What I, how I understand it now, I think a lot of it was kind of looking anew at um, kind of a situation and seeing, which I did, you know, particularly when you have less money, the internet was, you know, being started at the time in the 90s. And we thought, wow, you know, this, um, and the Peace Corps traditionally had connected with, you know, college-age students. We didn't have a website. I mean, if you, you know, it's, it's weird to think in that, in ancient history, last millennium days. Where, yeah, and the, you know, exactly one one generation and, ago, which is ancient history. Right. Yeah. So I'm dating myself horribly, but um, but I think you know the one of the best things about the Peace Corps that I think has kept it relevant is that it has to connect with successive generations of you know Americans, mainly young Americans who are you know the natural kind of feeding ground for it. So we, the Peace Corps was very early, a very early mover on, you know, getting online, having people apply online, figuring out how to adapt these technologies that were becoming more and more mainstream and incorporating them into the idea of the Peace Corps, which was never, I think, just to kind of maintain it as it was when it was uh, created. It was, you know, Sergeant Shriver was an innovative, dynamic person who would have been the first one to kind of say, well, geez, if you've been doing it for five years, it's probably out of date. Think again. Um, and I saw that that notion of um, at least social entrepreneurism as it as it can exist within government. I think the Peace Corps was a nice place, and there was a lot of that kind of energy and thinking about not just how to preserve how things were being done, um, but really how to advance the idea of the Peace Corps. That in a way that made sense at the time and with these new tools and understanding that, um, you know, the, the Peace Corps itself comprised of um, Americans, the demographics had changed a lot since it was established um, because the college kind of campuses had changed profoundly from 1960 to the early 90s. Um, you know, when colleges were mainly male in the early 60s when the Peace Corps was started, so the Peace Corps was mainly male. And by the mid-90s, the majority of college students were females, and the majority of Peace Corps volunteers were as well. So that required all sorts of rethinking and adjustments, uh, which were we usually identified them about a year after they were actually a thing. We recognized that uh, we had to kind of keep abreast, but that was kind of a forced change um, in a way that something like the State Department um, or a kind of a long-standing federal um, agency it doesn't have to retain that currency for its workforce every year. And so I thought that was a great benefit of um, the Peace Corps of trying to stay in sync with the American people who were um, actually serving in the Peace Corps and to just spout what had been important and sounded good in 1961 would fall on deaf ears to anyone in college in the mid-90s. It just was like the black and white era. and They were moving into the Internet era. So... I thought as challenging as it was, it was a really helpful reminder uh, that we, you know, kind of embraced today at Direct Relief as well, that because you were good at something at a time or someone said you were innovative at a time, never kid yourself, <laughs> you know, sure. times change and don't hold on to the wrong thing. And that I certainly learned that at the Peace Corps. Sure. And that's also where curiosity comes into play and the desire to continue to learn, not only as a, a teenager and as a student, uh, college student, graduate student, but also throughout life. Thank you.
This Innovate series features dialogue with some of the most influential advocates for changing our world, from the CEOs and founders of major nonprofits to the directors of cultural and academic institutions. Innovate demonstrates the vital role of empathy as an agent for that change. Innovate and Aspire are produced in partnership with Ashoka, Innovators for the Public, the Kellogg Fellows Leadership Alliance, and the Philadelphia Social Innovations Journal, and presented by Arch Street Press and the Public Radio Exchange. We now return to our Innovate interview with Managing Editor Robert Rim and Thomas Teig, President and CEO of Direct Relief. Uh, and so from the Peace Corps, uh, Thomas, how did you come to your role as President and CEO of Direct Relief? Well, you know, I think it was one of those things that they were recruiting and I had um, someone had forwarded kind of this advertisement and said, you know, have you thought about this? And I thought, nope, um, you know, what's an NGO? Um, uh, what what are these nonprofit uh, things? I just was, pro, you know, completely unfamiliar with the size of the nonprofit sector, um, NGOs, and you know, I kind of kind of broadly familiar with them, but um, many of them did similar work internationally to what the Peace Corps uh, does, but really no interaction whatsoever. So I, it, it seemed interesting. I'd grown up in California. Um, I had four little kids that had all been born in Washington, and thought, well, God, this sounds like an interesting idea, an organization. So I, you know, looked into it. It had a good reputation, kind of, um, it, in a way, it was the flip side of the Peace Corps, which was, the, if the Peace Corps is functionally, you know, a volunteer sending organization, it, it, its resource is a human resource. And Direct Relief's kind of trajectory had been, at one point, sending medical volunteers and working and training but had really evolved into a group that was working uh, with already trained people who just couldn't work because they didn't have the gear to work, you know? And so they had really kind of focused on how do you support health services uh, in places where there are trained health professionals, but just don't have the diagnostic and tools to treat. And and so for me, it was an interesting kind of flip side to the, the Peace Corps. It was you know, providing a different type of resource, but basically for the same purpose, uh, humanitarian purposes and trying to give people, you know, a, a chance to overcome their health challenges and basically get healthy and enjoy life and realize your potentials. And it had been doing it for a long time uh, without any religious affiliation. It was an, uh, it's it, no political uh, kind of affiliation, just to, you know, what started as a small kind of family-run uh, organization by war immigrants who ended up in Santa Barbara after fleeing the Nazis and you know had kind of grown into an, an interesting group with um, with these interesting ties to corporate America like the healthcare companies that went back to when it was founded and um, again when it, before there was this concept of corporate social responsibility people were recognizing that including the founders of direct relief that well these companies that do you know all these make all these great products and provide services for, in the commercial marketplace they're actually what what they do is needed in the non-commercial marketplace too and they're just not engaged at all so i think that was um really interesting to see direct release tradition of trying to in, working alongside companies trying to encourage them to make available certain resources uh for humanitarian purposes that you know the companies were manufacturing for commercial for their business purposes but um, you know like if they weren't losing a sale um, they were just helping somebody you know and I think we still basically try to adopt that same model and see how people in businesses and what they've learned and the products and services and kind of techniques that they use um, many of those same exact things are needed in places where there's not really a commercial driver to do them but you still need the things done, and if governments or nonprofits don't embrace those things, I think it's short-sighted, and that's why at Direct Relief we really look aggressively for companies that do things well and see if um, we might invite them to join in something they possibly haven't thought about. And within the scope of these humanitarian purposes, how do you tailor your programs to the particular 
uh, circumstances and needs of different communities really throughout the world? I think, you know, similar to the Peace Corps, I think you, you listen carefully. Um, and, you know, we're at, at heart, we're Direct Relief is a support organization. We don't, you know, we have our areas of activity, you know, within health, maternal child health and certain disease prevention and treatment. Uh, and we now run large, large programs, but it's because that we're asked um, <laughs> to do it. And I think after being around, you know, since 1948, there's very little, there's very few places for um, people who are, you know, trying to provide services to mid midwives who are you know, trying to extend help to places where women are delivering babies alone. I mean, no, no one's really against that at all, but it's not, it's not a good business because the, often the people least well served are poor. And so there's not really a business reason to provide a good or a service to someone who can't pay. It's actually a horrible business idea, you know, um, yeah, yeah. but it's a really good human idea. And so I think what we try to do is we look around and um, after you have a fairly large network of, of um, kind of partners and contacts around the world and, you know, we get more requests than we can respond to, but we also look for kind of people who are just deeply dedicated. Um, we understand the, the quandary that they're in, and um, and then do whatever we can to kind of mobilize resources, often medication supplies and things, you know, because they're focused on health uh, and money, and work with them to help them, you know, execute their plan. We really don't look around for people in foreign countries or around the United States to, you know, be agents of implementing direct relief grant plan. We're trying to work with people to fulfill theirs and there's a lot of good ones and uh, so as a support organization I think we look for groups of who well-trained high ethics uh, doing important work in often poor areas and do whatever we can to lean in and you know with the resources we can muster and, and help which is in fact the the true definition of a support organization uh, and so why are women and children disproportionately affected by poor health outcomes um, both in developing countries and in the United States. Yeah, you know, I, you know, I wish I knew the, the short answer. I think it's um, it's probably multiple factors. I think in, in a lot of places, um, you know, the the control of the wealth um, is typically not typically not, but not not always the case. Um, controlled by women, I think they um, they have. The, the family orientation, the support, um, often, you know, is you know, women have children and they nurse children and that kind of um, influences at least certain uh, periods of their life when that is traditionally kind of the role. But I think, you know, they've often, including in the United States, in um, the not too distant past, there were probably 50 years ago, three or four roles that women or little girls could see for themselves. You could be a wife, um, a housewife, a nurse, maybe a teacher, but they, there wasn't, there wasn't models or a pathway to be a lawyer, a doctor, and kind of a professional in any industry. That's relatively recent in, in the United States. And I think we've, we've benefited tremendously as a country economically in every other way in a lot of the traditional societies that, and this is going back to the Peace Corps days, that, pace of change hadn't hadn't been as fast. So there's still pretty strong kind of traditional role, gender roles in societies, culturally embedded, kind of religiously embedded sometimes. And so I think um, kind of if there's a pattern where their voice isn't as strong, their control of economic resources uh, isn't as strong, um, the support that they receive from the public services isn't as great, um, their representation in, in, in democracies as elected officials hasn't traditionally been strong. So I think a lot of those things play together um, to, not, I don't want to say keep them oppressed or suppressed, but, but in effect, yeah. I mean, they don't have uh, the same opportunities or reach or support in a lot of places in the world, and particularly in poor countries, I think, um, where, you know, the the age at which uh, girls become pregnant, young women become pregnant, it's tough. And that's, um, and that certainly determines the, sometimes they're seen, their value is seen as the ability to provide children. 
uh, or workers in an agricultural society. So I think they don't have the strength and voice that um, we've certainly come to acknowledge in the United States, although we have a ways to go for sure. Um, you know, I think there's still a lot of work in other places where women have, uh, you know, the opportunity to at least envision doing or being whatever they want to be. My daughter, who's 15, she has, you know, every opportunity that's open to, to boys um, since she's been born are open to her, athletically, professionally. I mean, there, there's really, it's wonderful to see. And that's a lot different from uh, when I was her age. And, you know, that the girls' pathways were, it was changing for sure, but it was um, in the 60s and 70s, it was in the midst of that change. And, uh, but, you know, my parents, you know, did not have that. So the, the ch pace of change is quick. It's quick, been quicker in the United States. But, you know, from a health perspective, I think the investment in uh, women's health is now recognized pretty broadly. Um, it, the recognition um, hasn't necessarily led to the funding and the support and the development of programs, but I think it's, uh, it's getting there because it's um, girls' education is a great kind of a great solution to economic problems, social problems. Uh, I think, you know, uh, women political leaders, uh, you know, I'm not sure if they, um, if there's many examples, but I'm not aware that uh, countries led by women tend to go to war <laughs> as often as countries led by men. <laughs> so I think um, as we look forward, you know, you hope that um, not only the health recognition and support for strengthening health services for women um, and children, you know, get stronger. But I think the benefits are just so, the long tail of benefits that are very broad, I think, is has been proven, I think, by a lot of research, actually, that dollar invested in women's, uh, girls' education is multiplied profoundly, a dollar invested in women's health, um, you know, has the same similar multiplier effect of health, around health generally. And despite the remaining differences, are you seeing the gap tangibly close? You know, I haven't looked at I think it's still a vexing issue. I think uh, far too many women die, you know, needlessly uh, from things that are preventable, treatable. Um, I think, you know, we, Director Leaf is very involved with, you know, this condition of obstetric fistula, which is like this horrible condition that only women experience. And it's really a birth injury that um, exists when you don't have access to um, emergency care when you need it. So, you know, these poor women, they're, they're typically poor, um, you know, they press and labor. And I think the, the baby's not delivered. The, the child is lost. The mother um, is left leaking kind of urine and feces with an open wound, essentially. And they're ostracized. It's like modern day leprosy and it only happens in poor countries and it's awful and so it's um when we see that and that you know we've tried to actually have a global fistula map if anyone wants to look at that trying to see where these cases are and what we can do as a humanitarian organization to mobilize resources and support um it, you know the surgeries to help them become physically repaired which is part of it but then, you know, give them a chance at life. The only women experience that. There's no male analog, and it's just an awful thing to see. And I, things like that, you know, the survival rate of children, uh, maternal mortality rate in poor countries is a very good proxy for how we're doing as a kind of a species, I guess. And, you know, we're not doing as well as we could in the United States, but I think certainly in some of the countries we work in, which is why we're trying to help with midwifery, we know that it works. There's a lot of evidence, um, but there's not a lot of funding. And um, but it's such a compelling issue. I think there's certainly provably uh, good things that can be done that will work. And um, I think that they're to the extent they're not being done, there's a competition for resources or attention. And I think you know, perhaps sadly. Women aren't as uh, don't have a seat at the table when those decisions are being made at the political level, and that kind of manifests itself in less funding being available um, where the rubber hits the road. Mm -hmm. And about the funding, don't you find it the case though that the more people know about the needs and the problems out there, the more they're willing and able to help? 
Yeah, I, you know, I, I think I think so. I, um, I mean, breast cancer being a perfect example, I think everyone's touched by it. I think the recognition, it's certainly something that uh, receives a lot of both um, philanthropic support and public support. There's a lot of charitable organizations involved in it, uh, which is great. I think it's um, still depressingly common and uh, in the, how many people it still touches tragically. But I think that is an example of, you know, there's probably a few stages of information um, being kind of collected and then shared and then internalized by people who, who receive it, which then leads to behavior change, you know. And I think, um, so I think for issues um, that get the information gathered and shared and elevated to a point of uh, visibility, those are essential pieces um, to then generate the kind of support funding or if, if it's in the case of like smoking, the same things had to happen before people change their own behavior to keep themselves healthy. But I think in some of the big public health issues, um, it's tough to, to rally support sometimes for things that, that just work really, really well. And, um, and it's frustrating. These days there's a lot of competition for people's attention though. Um, and uh, on, our, on our devices and there's a lot of people trying to sell you stuff and click on ads constantly. And so to try to inject and call attention to an issue like obstetric fistula or the kind of the significance and importance and consequence of helping support midwifery um, expansion in some developing countries, it's tough to get people's attention. There's a lot of other things out there, but um, I think that's the blueprint, you know, getting attention through as best you can. And, uh, and that's a big part of it for sure. And Direct Relief certainly seems to be uh, getting its share of attention, which is really great to see. So big picture, uh, Thomas, what does the future hold for Direct Relief? Uh, what would you ideally like to see happen? Well, I, you know, I think it's, it's funny. You know, we're just going through our strategic exercise trying to figure out what, you know, what does does the world need a Direct Relief? And what, what is it, you know, nonprofits get into trouble when they think um, – you know, self-preservation and continuing to raise money becomes the number one goal. I think, you know, we still see a lot of unmet need um, that's unlikely to be addressed through normal commercial business uh, activity in really poor areas. I mean, uh, we have, we're, we're privately funded and have a lot of amazing business folks on our board. We work with um, some of the leading businesses in the world. And, you know, it's, it's really clear businesses totally work and all the market forces, um, the drive the competition driving you know the quality up and the price down um, that's all true no no dispute that however markets also sometimes fail and markets are also very coldly logical if you can't make money doing something you're not going to do it for business reasons and we just see a lot of things like obstetric fistula like midwifery where there is a strong economic argument and a, a very strong and compelling human argument that to do it. But it's not a business. You can't make money off of people who don't have any. So you do it for different reasons. And we're trying to look at these things and see, wow, we're solving all sorts of problems. I mean, from the sharing economy, the share, shared or sharing economy and um, how much more kind of um, activity and value we can unlock by thinking just a little bit differently. And technology sure helps us do that. How can we kind of rethink direct relief, which is really functionally a distribution mechanism for resources? We gather information. We try to profile unmet demand that, that's not really commercial demand. It's, it's sort of need that's, you know, that's not expressed commercially. How do you mobilize resources efficiently and connect the resources that exist in this world to that human demand um, in a business-like way, even though it's not a, a commercial business. And we see a lot of opportunities to do that just within health um, services, but also information services, uh, you know, human uh, resources and, and types of services. And so as, as, look, as I look forward, I think to Direct Relief is one of the major channels now where private philanthropic health resources can flow to people who aren't going to get them any other way. 
And I think, you know, as the only nonprofit that's licensed in all 50 states, um, as a pharmacy distributor, you know, that's a, and we just do it for people for free because we know that there's a lot of people in the United States who need help, need medications, can't afford them and don't get them. So we have been working for years with companies to sort of say, look, we will be as licensed as, you know, Target and Costco Pharmacy, Walgreens, CVS and Rite Aid, which we are. And but we're trying to create a coherent, efficient mechanism to help people who can't afford products that you sell have access to them. Are you willing to help? You're not losing a sale if they're not going to buy it anyway. And we've been really encouraged that, you know, dealing with companies who are actually still run by people, you know, yes. who care and live in this country, you got to invite them. They're really good problem solvers. And we don't, you know, we, we, we think there's a huge opportunity to connect people who are unconnected, um, uh, make more broadly available um, health resources at low cost, uh, identify things that are working and share them uh, more broadly through, you know, things on the Internet, uh, tap the tools that uh, exist as we've done with like modern, the modern GIS information that will tell you where to point your car to go to Starbucks. Uh, we've been using to see identify well where's fistula and where's poverty <laughs> let's put a spatial component around this and see if we can unlock some thinking around that so there's enormous opportunity with the tools and resources that we have and the challenge is that they tend to be increasingly concentrated you know and um for the basic business drivers but um you know, I think the the promise is that everybody should be able to benefit to some extent from these innovations that are breakthroughs. Um, not everyone is now, and not everyone will if it's always going to be uh, based on a commercial transactions. So, governments are uh, certainly a mechanism to do that. Business does it on its own, and the challenge for direct relief and other nonprofits is how do you? What role do you fill? You don't want to compete with business. And you don't want to compete with government, but you want to kind of step into those areas not covered by either and see what you can do to, in, as a matter of public service, in our case, to just help people have the chance to realize their inherent potential as human beings. And a lot of that's frustrated by poverty, by health challenges, and by sort of dumb stuff that we know how to fix in 2016, for sure. And from that inherent potential just on an economic basis uh, at least from the government's perspective uh, aren't healthy people um, costing the government a lot less in welfare and right. health care costs yeah. in, in, in you know in, in social security disability income you know all right. these kinds of things isn't there a, a direct economic benefit for seeing these people healthy yeah I mean it's um, yeah I, in broad term and certainly in macroeconomic terms uh, it's undisputable, yeah. you know, um, and I think everyone kind of knows it, but the question is, well, who's going to pay for it, you know, <laughs> you know? and um, and businesses certainly um, will do it well if there's a business reason to do it, if the business case is there. You know, I, I went to law school, not business school, but I have been astounded by the brilliance of people who did uh, go to business school, and I'm pretty confident if there's a way to make money, uh, people will figure out how to do it. Yeah. Um, the challenge is, those places that are were in issues that where it's important to do something like help uh, people who get sicker, stay sicker longer, die sooner than they have to, but it's not particularly an attractive business um, proposition to help them. Okay, that doesn't engage the businesses, and if the government, you know, which is the traditionally the normal um, channel, if they lose the trust of the people. Because they, you know, people don't think they're spending, you know, their taxes wisely. It sort of sounds good. Well, government should do that. But if they don't, then people are going to say, well, I, I don't want to, just because they should, I don't want to give more money to the government. So I think there's this whole keeping um, abreast of, you know, that under any scenario, having people get sicker than they need to, stay sicker longer, die sooner, not be productive contributors in the economy is stupid. We know how to do that. We haven't really resolved how and through what means, and so. Um, but I certainly think that um, if we could figure out a way to depoliticize it, um, make it 
So all the expenditures really show um, progress. Um, you know, the best social investment, and when I worked from the Veterans Affairs Committee, it, you know, which is, in one sense, you know, services for veterans, both health services and income support services, it, it's socialized medicine for a particular class of uh, people um, who've earned it. Um, and the GI Bill after World War II was, you know, seen to have been the best investment by far that the, this, the U.S. government ever made. It multiplied itself. It created a generation of college-educated folks who uh, returned from the war off the farms and, and reinvented kind of the greatest generation. Um, that is pretty good, you know, a pretty good example of what we should aim to. Um, and, I, I, and I think, as you said, the case is there. It's just who's the credible one to make it, um, how do you do it well, and how do you do it in a way that, um, you know, it encourages people to be excited about it, not, you know, you know, fighting about it, uh, which I think is a role that nonprofits can play because um, there's enough people fighting about the politics. I think if we can become problem solvers and, and lead the way, um, I think a lot of people will follow. Yeah, and how and through what means uh, obviously remains with uh, key organizations like Direct Relief. Um, yet it's good to end on such an indisputable note, isn't it, Thomas? Absolutely. All right. Well, listen, thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you, Robert. My pleasure. The, be the best way to reach Thomas and to support Direct Relief is through directrelief.org. Click on the webpage links above this podcast for further details. Thank you for joining us today. Our library of interviews and a range of further resources may be found at archstreetpress.org or prx.org.